Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher, in for my colleague Julia Chatley. Just ahead on today's show, Odessa onslaught. Russia targeting the Ukrainian port city for a fourth straight night with more grain infrastructure destroyed. Kyiv accusing Russia of trying to knock out its ability to export food. We'll have a live update for you just ahead. Plus, AI Accord, Microsoft, Google and other leading artificial intelligence firms join forces on new industry safeguards. Outside oversight of generative AI is on the way. President Biden is going to be discussing the plan with tech leaders today. We are live for you in Washington with the very latest on that too. And Film Fight, the clash of Hollywood Summer Titans is on as by Barbie and Oppenheimer, I was about to say Barbenheimer, which everyone has been nicknaming it, um, battle for box office dominance. Film studios hoping for a picture-perfect weekend, a rare glimmer of cinematic excitement during a grim summer of labor unrest. And the blue chip bulls easily winning their battle with the Bears this week. U.S. futures solidly higher after the Dow's ninth straight session of gains, the longest winning streak for the blue chips in six years. The Nasdaq is set to bounce after a sharp pullback on Thursday, driven by less than stellar start to tech earnings season. Europe mostly higher, as you can see, uh, as well. More on the markets later on the show, but first some sad news coming to us here at CNN. Uh, the death of the legendary singer, legendary titan in the music world, Tony Bennett. Uh, he has now died at the age of 96, according to his publicist, the world-famous crooner who sang I Left My Heart in San Francisco, uh, has passed away again at the age of 96. Stephanie Elam has more. A legend on stage, Tony Bennett's career spanned more than 70 years. He was opening up for Pearl Bailey when Bob Hope discovered him in 1949 in a New York City club. You know, it's been about 16 years since I discovered you singing in a Greenwich Village nightclub. How come this is your first appearance on my television show? Well, I've been waiting for you to make good. <laughs> Bennett had a string of hits in the 50s, but the best was yet to come. He won his first Grammy Award in 1963 for his song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco, and performed it on The Judy Garland Show. I left my heart. The crooner's unique voice and timeless style helped him win a total of 19 Grammys and two Emmys throughout his career. Tony Bennett, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe the best pop singer in the whole world. 
You know, I asked Sinatra, why do you wow. think we stayed around so long? And uh, he said, because we stayed with good songs. But the classics weren't always hits. In the 70s, Bennett found himself without a recording contract. He was in debt and battling a drug problem. I realized that I thought I was doing well with the drugs, and it, I really wasn't. That's when Bennett's son Danny stepped in as his manager. Bennett re-signed with Columbia Records and began to revitalize his career. It was then he discovered a new audience, the MTV generation. Look, it's Tony Bennett. Hey, good to see you. I had The Simpsons. We did a commercial for MTV, and they liked it so much, they gave me an unplugged uh, special and that one album of the year. Fly me to the moon. Bennett went on to collaborate with singers like Amy Winehouse for Body and Soul and Lady Gaga for The Lady is a Tramp. I never bothered with people that I hate. At 85, he became the oldest living artist to hit number one on the Billboard 200 chart with his Duets 2 album. Several years later, he toured with Lady Gaga to promote their album Cheek to Cheek. Yet Bennett's talent went beyond singing. He was an accomplished painter with artwork at the Smithsonian. I have a charmed life because I've always known what I wanted to do. The son of a grocer and a seamstress, Bennett married three times and had four children. He and his third wife, Susan, founded the Exploring the Arts Foundation and opened the Frank Sinatra School of the Arts in New York. Everybody has a dream, a hope that something's gonna work for them, and then when it happens, it's a great joy. Bennett was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2016, but with the encouragement of his doctors, kept doing what he loved best, singing. How do you keep the music playing? He cut his final album, Love for Sale, with Lady Gaga and performed with her one last time in two sold-out concerts for his 95th birthday. He's my musical companion. And he's the greatest singer in the whole world. Aired on CBS, it was a moving tribute to a musical legend. Your golden sun Incredible career. He'll never be uh, forgotten. President Biden meets with leaders of major tech companies in Washington today to unveil a major new voluntary agreement to oversee artificial intelligence. They're agreeing to outside oversight of AI systems, as well as a promise to clearly label what is AI-generated content. The goal is to help ease fears about fast-moving technology that has very few guardrails at this point in time. Priscilla Alvarez joins us live now from uh, the White House. So Priscilla, essentially the White House is asking AI companies to make voluntary commitments, and I want to emphasize that these commitments are voluntary, to ensure that their products are safe and transparent. What more can you tell us? With the hope, of course, that eventually the government can play more of a role on regulating uh, this technology. This has been an emerging technology, one that has been rapidly becoming part of society. And it is what the White House is paying very close attention to. It's the latest in a series of actions by this White House to be involved in this technology, to get input from outside experts, and to try to stay ahead of 
this intelligence, which we have seen crop up, even including in political ads. So there are some commitments here that are important, uh, some of which you laid out, including uh, clearly labeling AI-generated content. We have seen content, again, come up, for example, in those political ads where it's not clear that it's AI-generated, or at least it is sort of at the top left or right corner. And so this is an effort to make that more clear, and as well as allowing outside experts to test the systems before releasing them to the public. So all of this is significant, but to your point and what you stress, it is voluntary, voluntary commitments by these seven leading artificial intelligence companies, names you'll recognize, including Amazon, Google, uh, Meta, and Microsoft, among others. And these executives will be meeting with President Biden uh, this afternoon, and he'll talk more likely about what he wants to see come out of these commitments. We also know that behind the scenes, officials are working on executive actions, and we expect those to come out later this summer, again, all focused on artificial intelligence. So really, there has been this year an ongoing effort behind the scenes to wrap their arms around this as it emerges. And now it's starting to come up in a more public way. I was in California not long ago where the president also met with experts on artificial intelligence. Today, all of this playing out here at the White House. Zane. Priscilla Alvarez, live for us there. Thank you so much. Ukraine's Odessa region came under intense Russian attack. For the fourth straight night, Russian missiles struck Grain warehouses destroying tons of crops and storage. Kiev says Moscow wants to destroy Ukraine's ability to export food. Joining me live now is Scott McLean. Um, so, Scott, the unintended consequences or probably intended consequences are that, yes, of course, it hurts Ukrainian farmers. But also, and this part is probably unintended, it hurts millions of people, especially in impoverished nations who are dependent on that food for survival. Ironically, many of them, especially in parts of Africa, are allies of Russia. Just walk us through that. Yeah, so the United Nations is already warning that, look, the consequences are going to go far beyond Ukraine with what's happening here. And you have seen now a fourth straight day where Russia has really pounded the Odessa and the surrounding region with missiles. And unfortunately for the Ukrainians, they are having a heck of a time actually shooting down these incoming missiles. And today's strike on this grain elevator or grain silos is really a good illustration of just how tough it is. The local governor of the Odessa region says that these missiles, two of them, were fired at such low altitude when they entered Ukrainian airspace that the uh, air defense system at first didn't pick them up and the air raid sirens warning the local population to take cover didn't go off until the missile, the first missile at least, had already hit its target. You also have the Ukrainians, of course, asking for better air defense. And in this case, you had, you know, 120 tons of, of uh, agricultural products, barley and peas, I think, uh, that it was. That is a relative drop in the bucket. But to your point, Zane, the bigger issue here is whether or not Ukraine can have access to its own ports to actually export uh, its agricultural products to market. Because as, as of this moment, the Russians are saying that, look, any ship headed into Ukrainian, Ukraine's port, regardless of what flag it's carrying, uh, will potentially be considered a legitimate target because it could be uh, carrying weapons. The Ukrainians have said basically the same thing to the Russians. And so the situation in the Black Sea right now is extremely tense. Of course, both Russia and Ukraine have other ways to get their grain out to market beyond the Black Sea. But for Ukraine especially, 
that is difficult to do it by train. It is far less efficient and they simply cannot ship the same volume as they could by sea. So cutting off this route is certainly making the global food market a lot tighter. Zane? And Scott, we're also learning that Russia is essentially, according to the U.S., laying the groundwork to attack civilian ships and then blame uh, Ukraine in some sort of false flag operation. What more can you tell us? Yes, yeah, so this sounds similar to what both sides have accused each other of when it comes to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, accusing each other of planning to strike the plant and then blame the other for the ensuing catastrophe. Uh, in this case, this is uh, originating from the White House. They say that it is based on intelligence that they have gathered that the Russians are looking to hit some kind of a ship, a civilian ship in the Black Sea and then blame the Ukrainians for it. And this is what the CIA chief Bill Burns said about it earlier. We see some very concerning signs of the Russians considering the kind of false flag of operations yeah. that, you know, we highlighted in the run up to the war as well. In other words, looking at ways in which, you know, they might uh, make attacks against shipping in the Black Sea and then blaming it or trying to blame it on the Ukrainians. What's not clear, though, Zane, is why exactly Russia would want to do this. Uh, the Russians themselves have called any uh, accusation like this. Um, they, they called it pure fabrication. That's from the Kremlin earlier today, Zane. All right, Scott McLean, live for us there. Thank you so much. Now to the American soldier who dashed into North Korea. The Pentagon says Private Travis King is officially AWOL or absent without leave, adding that it doesn't think he would have had any intelligence that North Korea would find at all valuable. The Pentagon also said there was no indication King's Crossing was planned in coordination with the North. South Korean court documents show King had been accused of assault in the past. And U.S. officials say at some point he had spent 50 days in a detention facility. The army says had he returned to the U.S., he absolutely would have faced additional consequences. We heard from his mother earlier. I just want my son back. I just want my son back. Get my son home. Get my son home. And pray. Pray that he comes back. All right. Uh, still to come after the break. Uh, it looks as though uh, sources... Sources tell CNN China-based hackers breached the email account of U.S. Ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns. He is the latest senior U.S. official to fall victim to Beijing's major hacking operation that began in May, but wasn't discovered until last month. Kylie Atwood joins us live now with the details. So, Kylie, just walk us through what China would have got out of hacking these emails. What sort of information would Beijing have obtained here? Yeah, well, what we learned last week from State Department officials was that the U.S. government believed that China was able to glean insights into their planning for the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken's visit to China by getting into these email systems. And the timeline here uh, just shows you, you know, why that was the case. According to Microsoft, this was an intrusion by Chinese-based hackers that began in mid-May, and then it was on June 16th, 
which is actually the same day that the Secretary of State left the United States to head to Beijing for that uh, first visit of his to China, that the that Microsoft was alerted by customers, you know, State Department officials and the like, that there was something going on with their system. So the fact that, you know, Chinese-based hackers were in the system during those weeks leading up to that visit uh, helps you understand why U.S. officials felt that they gleaned insights into the planning. And now what we've learned just this week is that two top State Department officials' email accounts were breached as part of this hack, including the U.S. ambassador to China, Nick Burns, and the assistant secretary for uh, the entire region of the East Asia region, Daniel Crittenbrink. And so that in and of itself is quite significant. Now, this breach on the whole was able to gain access to more than two dozen organizations, including these U.S. government emails. Um, and we should note that the State Department has said that they're not going to you know, read out their exact response. Last week, the Secretary of State said that this is still under investigation. So we continue to watch this space. We should also note, however, that this wasn't on the classified side. This was the unclassified side of the U.S. government system. So the fact that, you know, Chinese hackers got in um, is noteworthy, but it's not necessarily, you know, altogether surprising. This is kind of a fact of the matter when it comes to spying on uh, adversaries around the world. And China is known to have uh, very keen skills in this space. Right, Kylie Atwood, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here on First Move, the silent killer, how extreme heat poses a threat to life and is changing our planet for good. We'll explain. Plus, the White House touts a major agreement on artificial intelligence. The idea is to increase transparency. We'll look into that a little bit later on into the show as well. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back. Greece is brave, bracing for another heat wave as the climate crisis turns Mediterranean countries into a real hotspot. It comes as firefighters slowly get to grips with blazes uh, in the Attica region of Greece the island of Rhodes and elsewhere. Workers at the Acropolis in Athens are staging a partial strike through the weekend. They say conditions are unbearable. The union, in fact, representing them, says that 20 visitors have fainted from the heat and there are signs that scorching weather in southern Europe is changing travellers' choices about where to go in the future. Anna Stewart has been looking to all of this. She joins us live now uh, from London. So, Anna, I mean, of course, it's not just Greece. We talk about Greece, you know, with the heat wave and, of course, the wildfires mm. that firefighters are battling there. But we're seeing 
rising temperatures across Europe. How is this changing tourism? And we've seen heat waves in recent years as well in all of these locations. The temperatures that we're seeing in July and August aren't just uncomfortably hot. In many situations, they're actually quite dangerously hot. I just want to show you a heat map. This is from the European Space Agency. This was Tuesday of this week. And the land surface temperature for Rome in Italy and Bucharest in Romania hit 45 degrees centigrade. It was 50 degrees centigrade in Nicosia, Cyprus and the city of Catania in southern Italy. So as a result of that, some tourist attractions have to have limited hours or even be closed. There have to be uh, tourist operations to try and ensure that any tourists that are queuing for attractions have shade and water. This is a big operation. The big question is, for these southern European nations that rely so heavily on tourism for their economies, will it put people off? We have been looking into it. Currently, according to low-cost carrier EasyJet and some travel agencies, it doesn't appear to be a huge drop-off at this stage. And I can show you Europeans prefer destinations, the most popular spots in Europe right now, according to the European Travel Commission, Spain, France, Italy, Greece, Croatia, all of the hottest locations. But interesting, the ETC did say they're seeing that people flying to the Mediterranean between June and November of this year, it's declined about 10% from last year. Now, that could also be to do with affordability and a huge drop off from that post-COVID resurgence we saw in tourism last year. But it might be the beginning of a trend. And more interestingly, perhaps, is the fact that there's been a surge in popularity, zone for Czech Republic, Bulgaria and Ireland, which certainly have cooler climbs. So we could be seeing the beginning of a shift. And experts also wonder whether we might see some of these Mediterranean hotspot locations. Perhaps the tourist season that people want to hit is actually before or after July and August. Zane? All right, Anna Stewart, live for us there. Thank you so much. And heat is one of the deadliest natural hazards. It's called a silent killer because it's not visible but can quickly, of course, turn deadly. People who spend prolonged periods of time outside can be among the most vulnerable. Jeff Goodell is a climate journalist who spent the last three years researching the dangers of extreme heat and how rising temperatures are changing our world. He's the author of a book called The Heat Will Kill You First. He joins us live now from Texas. Uh, Jeff, The Heat Will Kill You First. Really uplifting title there. It gives us a lot of hope. Thank you so much. Um, but more seriously, I mean, gosh, what have we done to this planet? You know, you, uh, we're talking about not just heat waves across Europe and across the United States, especially in Death Valley, for example, but even in Iran, temperatures just reached about 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Those sorts of temperatures are unsurvivable. Um, just explain to us, you know, if we're dealing with all of this now, what do the next 10 years look like for this planet? Well, the next 10 years look pretty brutal. Uh, there's no way around that. You know, all this extreme heating is a, a result of our continuing to burn CO2, uh, burn fossil fuels and load the atmosphere with CO2. Uh, the science is very straightforward on that. You know, the most urgent thing we need to do right now is um, reduce and eliminate f um, burning of fossil fuels. You know, um, I called my book The Heat Will Kill You First because I really wanted to capture the immediacy of what's happening. This is not some far off distant problem. This is happening here and now, and it's getting more extreme by the day. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, many of us have always understood um, climate change intellectually. But I think that this summer has really given us a first-hand look at exactly how our planet is changing. And I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Nobody, nowhere seems to be completely immune to this. Um, just explain to us what hope 
there is for the human race? I mean, just looking forward over the next 10, 20, 30 years, what can we do to at least slow down, maybe not reverse, but at least slow down um, the rise in temperatures we're seeing? Well, I mean, I really resist this um, idea that, you know, are we doomed or are we not? We are not doomed. We have a lot of power, a lot of control over what's happening. Um, what needs to happen in the next decade or so is the elimination of fossil fuels. We need to get um, better at adapting to these changes, making more more dramatic changes in how we build uh, buildings, where we build buildings. Uh, we need to think differently about how we um, talk about these risks, you know, like extreme heat is something that very few people really understand how dangerous it is. And and we in the media do a bad job of talking about it. You know, on these extreme heat days, we often show images of kids playing in sprinklers or on the beach. And people really don't understand the risk that they're facing in these kinds of temperatures. So getting educated about this is really important. Um, democratizing air conditioning, giving people more access to that, building cities in different ways, more urban trees, more shade, um, more public parks, green spaces for people to have access to cooling. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's a really a rethinking of our of how we live. So how should we be talking about it? When we cover these extreme I, extreme weather events, what should we be saying, you know, since since we're both in the media? Well, I think we should be talking more about the, the risk that these kinds of temperatures um, uh, constitute. I think we should be talking about more about who's vulnerable, most vulnerable, and who's not. People with heart conditions, pregnant women who are pregnant, people who are on various medications like uh, diuretics or beta blockers, young children. We should be talking more about the difference between wet heat and dry heat and why wet heat is more dangerous than dry heat because the only way that our body cools off is by sweating and when it's hot and humid that sweat doesn't evaporate as well and we can't cool off as well. And we should be, you know, thinking about a lot of cities around the world are, are beginning to think about um, naming and ranking heat waves in a similar way that we do with uh, typhoons and other storms. And I think that's very promising. That's a good way of uh, communicating the risk better and quickly to, to a lot of people. And just in terms of countries that are, you know, that have done well in terms of preparing and adapting to extreme heat. I mean, parts of, I mean, I'm from the UK and I know that, you know, just even having air conditioning was not a thing when I was growing up. I mean, I think Europe, Western Europe is now catching on to the fact that these heat waves are going to become much more extreme, much more common, much more frequent. And so ordinary citizens need to consider just something as basic as, as air conditioning. Which countries do you think are more ready um, than others? Well, I, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of cities are leading the way, actually. Um, they're being the most innovative. Um, you know, I think cities like Athens, that has a lot of experience with heat, is is doing a lot of progressive things. They're trying to reconstruct an ancient aqueduct to bring water into the center of the city to create more green spaces. You know, um, cities like Los Angeles and Phoenix are experimenting with um, what more white surfaces. You know, one of the reasons that, that cities are so um, much hotter than the surrounding areas because of all the black asphalt and black roofs. So there's a lot of experimenting with kind of trying to brighten cities to reflect away some of the sunlight. 
Paris is doing an amazing job of, you know, greening the the uh, urban spaces, getting cars out of downtown, uh, out of the center of the city. So there's a there's a lot going on that I and I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm optimistic about where we are is that I think that a lot of these change we can use this moment for a lot of um, changes to make our cities and the places that we live um, better, healthier, cleaner uh, spaces. Right. Jeff Goodell, thank you so much. Appreciate you being honest with us about, you know, really where we are and how how dire the future looks if we don't get a handle on, on, on uh, climate change. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. We'll be right back. I want to recap some very sad um, breaking news that we just got into CNN about an hour or so ago, the death of singer Tony Bennett. He passed away at the age of 96 here in New York City. The beloved singer who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2016 was working until very recently. Happy birthday to you. Happy he won his last Grammy Award for the collaborative album with Lady Gaga called Love for Sale, which was released in 2021. But Tony Bennett's career spanned over 70 years, appearing on stage alongside the likes of Frank Sinatra, Fred Astaire, and a countless list of who's who in the entertainment industry. Entertainment reporter Chloe Malas joins us live now. I mean, when you think about just how legendary some of his songs were. I mean, Rags to Riches, you know, I Left My Heart in San Francisco because of you, Cheek to Cheek, the list goes on and on. I mean, this is somebody who will never be forgotten by the music industry. I understand that you actually got to spend some time with him. You met him in person a few years ago. What was that moment like? What was he like? It was his 90th birthday at the iconic Rainbow Room uh, in New York City. And when I tell you this was a birthday party, Zane, it was it was like a wedding. So there were so many celebrities there. But I did get to interview Tony Bennett and we spent a few moments on the carpet and he held my hand as he did with everyone that he met that night. Um, And I asked him, how does it feel to turn 90? And this was about five years before he was publicly diagnosed and they came forward with his a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And he told me, life goes fast. Life goes fast. He said, I'm 90, but I still feel like I'm about 35 years old. He said, the audience has always made me feel accepted. I've been sold out throughout my whole life, performing throughout the world. It's a great gift. And I'm very honored to have had a great life entertaining people. And he did just that 19 Grammy Awards over a career that spanned, you know, more than 65 years, more than 70 years. Um, at that party, John Travolta, Katie Couric, Lady Gaga, Regis Philbin. Um, I mean, the list just went on and on. But I think that the most profound thing was that Tony Bennett loved performing. He loved making music. And he truly, people all said that fame never changed Tony Bennett. And I think that that is one of the most beautiful things about his life. 
Right. So not only a talented singer, but extremely grounded as a person um, as well. I mean, what I find interesting about him is just how long he lasted in Hollywood, how how long his career lasted. I mean, you talk about dozens of, of Grammys and a 70 year career. I mean, this is somebody whose career has survived rock and roll. Right. It survived pop music. It survived the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And then he reinvents himself by collaborating with Lady Gaga, who also became a dear friend to him, too. They had this beautiful music love affair and they put out two albums. They toured together. And, you know, Lady Gaga spoke out about two years ago about Tony being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she said it was just devastating to watch, you know, on one hand, he might forget someone's name or forget where he was, but Zane, he had this uncanny ability to be able to, despite the disease and the hold it had over him to get on the stage and to perform in front of a packed audience and not miss a beat. So audience members would watch and see him and feel like that was the old Tony Bennett. But obviously he had this disease that was um, causing him so many cognitive issues. And his family had been very outspoken about his battle with Alzheimer's. His wife, Susan, his longtime wife, who was at his bedside um, when he passed away, uh, she spoke out to AARP magazine about Alzheimer's and what her husband had been going through. Um, so they felt like it was very important because, you know, just because you're famous doesn't mean that you share everything about your life. We see all the time, uh, you know, people or like Tina Turner or others who pass away and it's a bit shrouded in mystery and you don't know what's going on. And the fact that Tony and his family wanted to share that he was battling Alzheimer's and be public and hopefully help other people with his story. I think that was truly beautiful. Absolutely. All right. Chloe Malas, Life was there. I'm sure those memories of you and him together and those wise quotes, those wise words that he shared with you, I'm sure you'll treasure that forever. Uh, Chloe Malas, Life was there. Thank you. All right. Still to come on First Move, we'll take you to New Zealand and Australia for the latest from the Football World Cup next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the last trading session of the week. A solidly higher open with the Nasdaq bouncing back from a 2% drop uh, on Thursday. The Dow on target for its 10th straight winning session. Lots of big challenges for traders ahead. A rebalancing of the large tech Nasdaq 100. It's on its way. And the U.S. Federal Reserve meets next week to discuss interest rates. Another quarter of a percentage point hike is widely expected. The bulls hoping the Fed's rate hike campaign is almost over as inflation cools. And Football fans here in the United States are eagerly awaiting the kickoff of their women's team quest for a historic three-peat at the World Cup. Obviously, they've done it two times before. The match against Vietnam is scheduled for 9 p.m. Eastern time earlier today. Spain and Switzerland won their openers, but Canada had a goalless draw against Nigeria. 
Amanda Davis joins us live now with the latest. So what can we expect from uh, the defending champs, Amanda? You wonder, Zane, how those players will be sleeping. You wonder if they're <laughs> sleeping at this moment. It's approaching two o'clock in the morning in New Zealand, some 12 hours to go until the US begin the defence of their World Cup title. Uh, they will be pretty confident, though, heading into an opening match against Vietnam, a side whose coach has admitted they have a mountain to climb in their opener. Um, you might remember four years ago, the US kicked off their campaign in France against Thailand with that thumping 13-0 victory. They were criticised in some quarters for perhaps going too hard too soon on a team making their debut in the competition. But the US said, this is in our DNA. We are here to win. We are not going to go easy on anybody. And they're very much making the same noises uh, approaching this one going, as you said, for that historic, what would be an unprecedented three-peat. No men's or women's side have ever won three World Cup titles back to back. This US team, though, has been a, a team in transition for all the experience, the likes of Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan here at their fourth World Cups. They've got 14 players making their World Cup debuts, but that seeing it as a real opportunity to, to make a name for themselves, the likes of Naomi Girma and uh, Alyssa Thompson. So they are hopefully sleeping soundly ahead of their big kickoff. And they'll have been really interested to see how some of the other teams being talked about as potentially a threat to their title this year. The likes of Spain have done. They really set out with uh, intent in their opening match against Costa Rica. A 3-0 victory for them. It could have been a whole lot more. A really funny line from one of the English journalists, Sid Lowe, saying the best way to sum this one up, on a wet and windy night in Wellington, the Costa Rica goalkeeper got cramp. The goalkeeper touching the ball far more than any other member of the Costa Rica side, with Spain peppering their goal, but ultimately scoring three and having the uh, added bonus of their superstar midfielder, Alexia Puteas, two-time Ballon d'Or winner, uh, making an appearance for the final 13 minutes. She hasn't played a, an entire 90 minutes since uh, being injured just ahead of the European Championships last year. So a real step in the right direction for her and for this Spanish side. Uh, Canada, though, are feeling very disappointed, devastated it is how their coach, Beverly Priestman, took, uh, put it after their goalless draw uh, against Nigeria. A side ranked 33 places beneath them in the world rankings. Christine Sinclair, the most prolific international goal-scoring footballer, men or women, hoping to become the first player to score in six editions of a World Cup. But that happened midway through the second half. Chimaka Ndozi, 22-year-old Nigerian goalkeeper, pulling off a sensational save, stealing so many of the headlines. She's posted a fantastic uh, post on social media saying, Dear girl child, dreams come true. What a great message. Right. We'll see what happens with uh, Team USA, though. Amanda Davis, live for us. Thank you so much. And with an estimated audience of more than one billion, the Women's World Cup is one of the biggest sporting events in the world. But there's still a major controversy. And that is, of course, the gender 
pay gap. A new CNN analysis finds players at this tournament will on average make just 25 cents for every dollar earned by men at the last World Cup. One of the reasons why many people are calling for more support for women's football. And one of the companies that has been doing that is Zero, an accounting platform based in New Zealand. Joining us live now is CEO of Zero, Sekinda Singh Cassidy. Uh, Sekinda, thank you so much for being with us. I mean, what I'm most excited about when it comes to this Women's uh, World Cup is just really the record-breaking numbers we're seeing in terms of popularity. More people are watching the women's game than, than we've ever seen. Um, it's certainly growing. I'm sad that it took so long to get here, um, but happy that it's growing nonetheless. Why was this an important event for you and for Zero to partner with? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And I echo your excitement about the Women's World Cup and more importantly, the exploding popularity of women's football around the world, not just in the Southern Hemisphere, but the Northern Hemisphere and everywhere Zero operates. We operate in New Zealand, Australia, the UK, Canada, the US and everywhere women's football is exploding, which explains a lot about why we decided uh, to really help sponsor this event. I think it's not just about the support of women's football. It's about the support of small businesses, grassroots football clubs for women, and ultimately, as you know, gender equality in sports and beyond, which is why we were so excited to be a part of it. Yeah, and just talk to us a bit more about your partnership, because you're not just sort of partnering with them through the more sort of traditional sponsorship avenues. Yeah. You're sort of thinking outside the, outside the box. Just walk us through that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you hit on it. Uh, while we certainly are sponsors of the event itself, our relationship with FIFA, with the England English Football Association, with specific clubs, with New Zealand football, is about supporting grassroots clubs so that we know that when women's clubs, you know, thrive, women can thrive. Um, and we do that uh, in the way that's unique to zero, of course. We are a small business accounting platform and we believe that clubs need to be financially sound. And so we're providing a variety of education and financial literacy tools as part of our long-term partnership with FIFA and clubs around the world. The sort of criticism that has always dogged um, women's football in recent years is of course the gender, gender pay gap. I mean, women are making a quarter on average compared to what their male counterparts earned. And by the way, the women's football team, Team USA, for example, um, is one of the best teams in the world. I mean, they've won the World Cup twice. They, we, we'll see what happens this time around, whether they win it for a third time. But that is incredible. They have an incredible record. Um, you know, obviously, in terms of just making it much more equal financially, TV coverage is a huge part of that. Um, getting more eyeballs on the sport is an important part of that. When you have gender equality in a sport that is popular, like soccer, like football, what are the sort of wider ramifications for society at large? Yeah, well, look, I think you've hit on um, the fact that there is progress being made, but we have a ways to go. I think the U.S. team and U.S. soccer made some big strides in announcing equality of that prize pool um, for both men and women. Um, and as you hit it, you know, when players and teams of all sizes thrive, you can really see this this sport attract even more top talent and become even bigger. I mean, there is no doubt that, as we talked about, you know, uh, when 
women's coverage and women's interest or people's interest in women's soccer is exploding. But once that prize pool and kind of financial equality happens, you then see a higher and higher virtuous cycle and the attraction of really top talent, top talent increases top viewership, top viewership increases the prize pool and away we go. So I think there is a lot to be said um, for FIFA's intention uh, to get equality here in the 26 and 27 uh, World Cups. That's what they've stated. We've seen uh, the U.S. Soccer um, Association make the same commitment. Um, and it is very important to have that virtuous cycle up um, uh, into really making this a world-class sport, as it deserves to be. As it deserves to be. All right. So, Kinder Singh Cassidy, thank you so much for being with us. And more breaking news into CNN. Former U.S. President Donald Trump's trial date in the classified documents case has now been set. Trump and his valet, Walt Nauta, will go to court in Florida uh, in May of next year. Trump has pled not guilty to charges of violating the Espionage Act and obstruction of justice. The charges are related to how he handled classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. Welcome back to First Move. You couldn't conceive of two more different movie plots. Uh, one, a film about an iconic doll beloved the world over. The other, the story of the man they call the father of the atomic bomb. Very different. This summer, though, strange bedfellows, Barbie and Oppenheimer, are battling for box office supremacy as their respective star turns hit theaters. It could be the highest grossing movie weekend of the year in the U.S. in a rare shot of summer excitement during a time of Hollywood labor chaos. Jason Carroll is queuing up for his tickets right now. He joins us live now from outside a movie theater in New York. Uh, I think I used to live around there. I think you are somewhere in Midtown <laughs> that I used to live near. Anyway, um, so it's nice just to see my former home behind you. But um, one thing that I'm really excited is about is not just watching both movies, Barbie and Oppenheimer, but if Barbie does really well, it could be the highest grossing movie for a female directed film. Mm -hmm. That is huge. Walk us through it. Yeah. Yeah, could be a lot of firsts here. There's a lot of hope and also a lot of hype surrounding all of this. In terms of hope, the hope is that these two films can really do something to bolster the theater community since they've really been struggling post-pandemic. But the big question that a lot of fans have is which one to see first. Probably not much of a surprise when one hears something odd has come out of Hollywood. But now there's this. World will remember this day. That's not a clip from a real movie. It's a fan-driven mashup of two. And it's the answer to anyone out there trying to figure out what to do when two potentially blockbuster films open on the same day. Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. And Oppenheimer. This is a matter of life and death. The internet's answer is to see both. Barbenheimer. I saw Barbie in the morning. I saw Oppenheimer in the afternoon. How did that go? It was the right way to do okay. it. I think you see Barbie afterwards as well. Yeah, okay. Yes, again. A Barbie, so like sandwich. A Barbie chaser. There are TikToks, tweets, and T-shirts, even a Barbenheimer Wikipedia page promoting what has become a viral marketing phenomenon, pushing moviegoers to try both. <gasps> Whoa. So I see you've got your Barbie pink on. So the question is, will you see Barbie and Oppenheimer or just one? 
Oh yeah, both. Both, both. We kinda, yeah, we kind of like the idea of walking into Oppenheimer with full pink. So it's the bar Barbenheimer experience. Both films are worlds apart. You guys ever think about dying? On the one hand, you have director Greta Gerwig's <laughs> fantasy comedy about a doll experiencing an existential crisis and has to go to the real world to resolve it. The company behind it, Warner Brothers Discovery, parent company of CNN. That's happening, isn't it? And on the other, you have Christopher Nolan's biographical thriller for Universal about a physicist credited for creating, well, you know. I mean, I'll be going to see Barbie 100%. I can't wait to see it. I think it's just great for the industry and for audiences that we have two amazing films by amazing uh, filmmakers coming out at the same day. It's a perfect double bill. I think actually start your day with Barbie, then go straight into Oppenheimer and then Barbie Chaser. Could a double feature about a plastic doll and the so-called father of the atomic bomb breathe much-needed life back into a movie industry hit hard by streaming, disappointing post-pandemic box office, and now actors and writers on strike? I think this is the best thing that's happened to movie theaters in a really long time because it's happening really organically. Variety also reporting, Zane, that the National Association of Theater Owners reported $200,000 in ticket sales so far. So it appears Barbenheimer is off to a pretty good start. Zane? I'd say so. I'd say so. The box office will be the winner of, uh, of this weekend. All right. Jason Carroll live for us there. Thank you so much. And that is it for the show. Connect the World is up next. You're watching CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.